So, Jeff, we have absolutely earth shattering coach change news going on right now in the college football world. All right. The head coach of the yep, the national champion head coach of the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University Rattlers. Coach Willie Simmons has moved on after 45 and 13 in three years. But the Celebration Bowl title, he is now going to be the running backs coach for Manny Diaz at Duke University. And I think this is a real step down for him. This is I really do think he's he's really selling himself short here and could probably go for a head coaching job in the FBS. But he is he was a Clemson player and uh, he's back in his roots up in the tobacco road. So I, I guess he had to go where he thought he had to go. Yeah. What do you think, Jeff? It's weird because we aren't really that far removed from. People coming up from FCS to FBS, either as head coaches, um, as offensive coordinator from the FCS level to the to being an offensive coordinator at the FBS level. Brennan Marion, um, Joe Moorhead took a little bit of a step back going from Fordham head coach to offensive coordinator at Penn State. But that's not nearly what we've seen the this past season where both with Simmons and uh, North Dakota State's Matt Entz going to be a position coach at the P5 level. It's hard to tell if that's just the market not valuing FCS coaches that highly and them saying this is what I need to do to move in my career that people would rather hire me with that position position coach experience at the P5 level, which I think is a shame because you have a lot of great coaches that have head coaching experience that have the experience you want if you are hiring a head coach kind of get get missed because yeah I think we've we've talked about that Willie Simmons should be considered for head coaching jobs at the FBS level in addition to that you, you we forgot we'd be remiss not to mention Sean Lewis being the head coach at Kent State and then taking a step back to be OC for Colorado then getting I I guess shadow fired is the word not quite sure how to describe it but then getting benched to not be the OC and showing just how valuable he really was to the University of Colorado. Um, it's it's weird, right? I mean, you get these guys who are at the top of their level and then or at the top job and then they take a step back. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. I, I don't know how I feel about it. I In Penn State's case, I guess I could see the argument for asking a coach to step back. Because the guy that was there, uh, the what the offensive coordinator, everybody disliked there for a long time. I mean, it was clear it wasn't working. Yeah, and Moorhead right? is a really unique case because one, at this point in time, I think the money as a assistant at somewhere like Penn State is going to be substantially more than head coach at somewhere like Fordham. And two, no, absolutely, Moorhead was doing really innovative things with his offense at Fordham. That was a really good hire. I mean, it's it's probably the most dynamic. It's definitely the most dynamic offenses that James Franklin has had at his time in Penn State with Joe Moorhead calling the plays. So it it and Moorhead then moved on after a couple of years to be uh, head coach at Mississippi State, which that didn't necessarily end great for for Moorhead, but that's 
kind of a proof of concept of that trajectory and, and that I think Moorhead's career is kind of weird at this point, but at that point, it looked like that was a really good trajectory for him. No, you're absolutely right. I, I do want to interrogate this question. Um, the, the question about is the market valuing FCS very low or to this level, that low? Um, very clearly, Coach Simmons took the job at, at Duke, and that is a $100,000 increase over what he was doing as the head coach of a national championship winning team. His increase is $100,000 to be the running backs coach. Obviously, he's doing much less work, I would assume, than he would be as a head coach. But he did get a lot of what would be a substantial amount of money, $100,000 raise to go and be the running backs coach. What is the value on the market, I guess, for an FCS head coach? I mean, their salaries are percentages of an FBS head coach, right? I mean, what do, what do you think on that, Jeff? Yeah, I, I would say purely of salary, you know, salary to salary, you can see that. And that's partially just how big the media deals are, particularly at the P5 level and FBS. I think the, the odder thing is you're not necessarily seeing FCS to FBS G5 level hirings and you're not necessarily seeing as many as you'd expect G5 to to P5 hirings of head coaches. So it's interesting that that slowed to where I think a lot of people, even irrespective of money, just looking at how do I progress my career, thinking that being a assistant at the P5 level is going to advance your career to a greater degree than being a head coach at a lower level, um, which I think also has some interesting implications because there's really nothing like doing the job of being a head coach. And so for a lot of schools that are hiring, you put yourself in a situation where the coach you're hiring to be a head coach, if you're getting a, a position coach, from another um, FBS school, you've got more uncertainty there. And things kind of, we'll kind of see how that works out for a lot of hirings in the next couple cycles. It does make me wonder. I mean, Matt Rule comes back from the NFL. He gets the job at Nebraska. They pay a king's ransom for it. He talks all the time about how much money it's going to take to make the program where they think they should be within the station in the the sport, broadly speaking. We look at how much money Michigan is offering Jim Harbaugh. You know, that's those are two tent poles, one in the middle, one at the end, one at the high end. I mean, we look at what Sean Lewis was making. He was making almost $400,000 which again that's a that's a massive amount of money so i'm i'm simply cordoning off the market for head coaches at, in college football and 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 we can strictly keep it fbs for right now um but these coaches are making three wildly different amounts of money where Sean Lewis at his time during Kent State is making a fraction of the money that that non-championship winning Nebraska coach 
Matt Rule is making. And again, yes, Matt Rule did win the American, so I don't want to take that away. But I'm saying right now, it's he didn't make a bowl at Nebraska his first season. And he's making much more than Sean Lewis's current job with San Diego State. I'm, I think it's San yeah, Diego he's State. San Diego State now. Check that. Yeah, he's at San Diego State. He's still making more than Sean Lewis. And I just I'm I'm completely mystified. Yeah, it's and obviously you can you can look at kind of program revenues and that feels like that's the what drives a lot of what ends up being spent is more or less what you have to spend. But it it's also very strange the we are not that far removed from Ball State uh, getting being the resume builder to get the San Diego State job for Brady Hope. And the fact that Lewis had to take a step back to be a coordinator to then get that get a job you know out of out of the Mac. So at a at a similar place is a bit odd. To to I, well hold on I want to Brady Hoke had other jobs before he was at Ball State. Oh, I and and to some degree I, as well, he won the Mac at Ball State versus Sean Lewis getting Kent, which Kent is one side of the division. Yeah. He did win his side of the division. Yeah. Won the East one year. I mean, I don't know. I, if I if my memory serves, Brady Hoke is the last coach before Jim Harbaugh to beat Ohio State. Am I remembering that correctly? That is I mean, that is correct. Uh so it's a tough it is a tough road to hoe. And he got paid a lot of money to do it. So I now he's semi-unemployed, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Ohio State went six and seven that year. I, oh, I, I, I know. I, I stormed just, the field when Purdue beat them. I Yeah, I remember <laughs> them getting just... I that was just like they lost four games in a row. Like they played Miami, they lost that game. They lost to Michigan State, who won the conference that year. They lost to Nebraska. I watched that game. I they then won against ranked Illinois, which wild. Um, ranked the uh, Wisconsin. They beat lowly Indiana, and then the body blows that they took from Purdue. They lost the next four games in a row. Like, just what a wild season that was. And uh, it got Luke Fickle the Cincinnati job. Yeah. What a wild time. Talking about coaches that worked their way up and made a whole bunch of money. Great job, uh, Luke Fickle. And and on Wisconsin. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> I, all I know is Wisconsin will beat us no matter what. Till the end of time. So, Yeah, it'll, it'll turn around. And I think that will be our cold open.
And so, welcome, welcome, welcome to the championship recap of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and uh, I am excitedly joined with my uh, my fellow host, Jeff, who is once again globetrotting. This time he's actually globetrotting, folks. <laughs> Jeff, how are you? Where are you? And uh, what is new? With you? As always, I am in Big Ten country. That's right. I am in Big Ten country. I'm in Southern California. Uh, I am a couple days or two days as we record out from uh, running the half marathon um, out here. So I am. I am enjoying the slightly uh, warmer weather. Um, enjoying we we walked around Disneyland some, and turns out in out here in Big Ten country, the most common thing we saw was Texas A and M gear. They're sending a message. They're <laughs> everywhere. You can't escape them. I I'm glad you're escaping this weather. It is nasty uh, in the rest of the country. <laughs> um, freezing rain is headed my way. A thing I don't want. And uh, could do without. But yet, here we are. Um, that being said, Jeff, uh, they did it. They played a national championship game. And we've crowned ourselves a 2023 national champion. We're going to talk about that game. And uh, we're, we we have thoughts. Um, we do. <laughs> my gosh. We have thoughts. Uh, we're going to break down some things uh, and uh, talk about how, how the teams kind of had their whole seasons culminate in this game, I would say. We have some literal earth-shattering news and some movement, and we're going to have a conversation, uh, a topic that I think Jeff has brought up and what is actually healthy in these conversations. Uh, and uh, I'm not quite sure if there's a dessert on this. I, I know that you've got a couple of guys here that were soccer managers, and... Uh, we're going to talk about who replaced who. <laughs> yeah, the, so, the dessert so is going to be a, a a joke about two coaches in two different sports sharing a last name. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, we're going to jump right into it. Michigan 34, Washington 13. Number one, Michigan goes 15-0, and 9-0 in the Big Ten, wins their first national championship since 1997, and the Lloyd Carr team that won it all back then. Uh, it took them nine years Nine seasons anyway, uh, a bunch of losses in a row to Ohio State. But Jim Harbaugh has now won 15 straight, rattled them off, and has brought home the national championship trophy, a Rose Bowl win. And Big Blue is, is uh, I'm sorry, Big Blue is going to be, uh, that's Kentucky, so excuse me there. But the Maize and Blue have taken home the national championship uh, Jeff, it was a momentous occasion, and we watched it. At least I watched all of it, uh, and spent some type, part of it in the chat. But just an unmitigated shutdown of the offense perpetrated by the Michigan defense on the Washington offense. I there's a lot of purple on our stats on paper, game on paper, and that's bad. Uh, Jeff, why don't you walk us through what happened in this? Yeah, game? I see. So. On the stat side, negative uh, 0.24 EPA per play for Washington. That's 12th percentile. And very importantly for what Washington wants to do, negative 0.29 EPA per drop back, which is 19th percentile. Michigan's defensive line and secondary basically created no room for a lot of the downfield passing 
that Washington really wants to do. And that was kind of this, that was really the story of the game of Michael Penix Jr. being under pressure, not having the ability to have time to get the ball deep downfield to the receivers. The secondary was really not creating a ton of separation and Penix kind of struggled to get the ball to them. And some of the adjustments that Washington was trying to do in terms of do some short passing to just get any yards whatsoever. Michigan prevented anything after the catch. And so with Michigan having a couple early scores, just the whole game, Washington was in kind of a negative game state and Michigan controlled what the game was. To your point about it being in a negative game state, Washington threw the ball 52 times. So 73% of their pass of their of their offensive plays were passes. And they generated a minus 14.88 EPA. They lost two touchdowns in the totality of them throwing the ball. And one of the things that stands out to me in this game is that the Washington defense came to play because they actually showed up and to the best of their ability, they were able to affect Michigan's offense. And this game did not get out of hand until late. I mean, it was a 13-20 game at half um, or 10-20 or it was a close game at half. And then, you know, the Washington defense got into the backfield. They were able to get stops when they needed them. I mean, Michigan was... 9% 9% success rate on third down. I mean, I they did what they had to defensively like they always do. They didn't get any turnovers. They got one sack. And their offense did not provide the, the offensive explosion that they normally have. I mean, J.J. McCarthy was 10 for 18. 140 yards. He also ran the ball three times for 35 yards. So he, they didn't run the entire offense through the court. It's not like, I want to be clear here, J.J. McCarthy acquitted himself well in this game, but he didn't blow the doors off of Washington with what he did. Yeah, I mean, the, the running game for Michigan was very good, and obviously with, with their positive game state, they were very happy to do that. But it's yet again the Michigan defense being the strength of the team. And creating the situations for success. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm Donovan Edwards, six carries, 104 yards, two TDs. I mean, he took the handoff twice and scored. It was just gone. I mean, Blake Corum had 21 carries, 134 yards, and he had two TDs. There was when they needed to get big runs, they got them. And then the defense shut down the prolific Washington offense. And I I take a bit of, I disagree slightly when I hear that people are pointing out, well, this Washington team offensively wasn't like 2019 LSU. And I, I don't want teams to be compared in that way because a historical comparison doesn't do anything here. The Michigan defense is an in the 2023 season, was an elite unit. Not a good unit, 
not a great unit. They were an elite unit. This is this defense should go down as one of the great defenses in college football history because of what they did to all the opponents they faced. Yes. They turned everyone they played, every team that lined up against them into a sputtering shell of itself. Except apparently Maryland, I get I I Go like, Terps. Genuinely. You know, genuinely except Maryland who scored a bunch of points on them, but every team they played was shut down in the exact same way. We're going to make you one-dimensional and then we're going to come after your quarterback. And they did that. I just un, unreal. I I'm very impressed. I they they did it. They did the thing. Like they went out there, did it, stopped them and said, you're going to run for three yards of play. You're going to throw for 4.9 yards of play. And then good luck. The one short field is the touchdown that they scored, is the touchdown that Washington scored. Couldn't draw it up any better than that. Forced two turnovers and just ended all threats that got anywhere near the 50. It's just really impressive. I, I don't know what else to say. Other than their defensive coordinator will probably get a head coach job at some point. Yeah. And deserves it. <laughs> to, to, to be very honest, absolutely deserves it. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the win probability. Michigan at no point in this game was threatened to like to your point, Washington being a negative game state. Washington at no point in at no point in time had anywhere near a win probability that was suggesting they would win this game. Of course, that's just that's that's just a statistic. It's just a calculation. But Washington was chasing the game from start to finish. Yeah, and I mean, like the one of the, we, we've got also go the uh, EPA chart, and basically, once you got past seven plays, Michigan had more EPA for the whole game. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm looking at it now, and I apologize. I had to score wrong. It was 10-17 into the third. So th- this wasn't a blowout by any means. And for two of those quarters, nothing happened. Like, the Washington defense completely did what they had to for two quarters. I, impressively, I might add. But in the end, I mean, they just could not generate any offense. And, I, I again, I blame all that on the Michigan defense. Like, they... Put the clamps on them. I, there's really no other way to say it. Yeah. So I, I want to ask this question, Jeff. There's a lot of turmoil at the time of this recording. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with Jim Harbaugh, whether he'll take the NFL job that he wants, stay with Michigan, get a statue. It's hard to know. But how different does this Michigan team look in 2024? They are losing a lot in terms of graduating seniors. Um, there yes. are some questions on on some folks that could leave for the NFL, um, but could also come back. So J.J. McCarthy, quarterback, is is among them. And that's going to be somewhat of an unresolved question along with, as, as mentioned, uh, head coach. Although I think the assistants on staff deserve head coaching jobs um spent much of the season being the head coach with suspensions so you could just see an internal promotion if 
if Harbaugh leaves for the NFL. I, I think we offensive coordinator. Uh, I'm sorry to step on you there, but offensive coordinator coach Sharon Moore needs absolutely get a head coaching job, and it, it should be Michigan if 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 things happen the way we think they may happen. He's already shown he can do the job. He's already auditioned. <laughs> I mean, he's won the audition. Right? Yeah. I'll say a a massive part of why Michigan won a national title is the fact that, you know, he was essentially head coach for like half the games. Like he deserves being called a national champion head coach as much as uh, Jim Harbaugh. But yeah, I think I think I would think that just because of player turnover and particularly on the defensive side, a little bit of a step back. I mean, I think this is still going to be very good. Very good Michigan team. And one of the big things about this defense was the depth. I think that there there is the ability to to pick back up, but I I don't necessarily know if they are the odds on favorite going next year, but I don't also don't think it really matters. You know, you want a national title. Cel- celebrate. And if there were players, I think a lot of the players that did stick around last year who could have jumped to the NFL said they wanted to stay to win a, a national title. So good on them and and if they want to move on to to the NFL that's that's their prerogative as well no you're right i i i asked that question because we're looking at a wildly different landscape the two teams that just played in this comp, in this national championship will be conference mates the vast majority of michigan's holdings are going to move on we're going to have the most wide open field that we have had in almost 20 years for reasons that will become apparently <laughs> clear in the next section. Uh, Jeff, I'll ask you this. I, I took the first word on this one. I'll give you the last word on this one. Uh, what do you take away from this game, this season, both of these teams? Uh, uh, I want to touch on something with Washington before we go, but w- what's your final word on this? Of defenses I've seen, I think this Michigan defense is – Potentially the best, um, certainly in the conversation for the best defense of, of my lifetime. And we need to absolutely applaud everything they've done. There are people that have said, oh, they were never challenged during the season. And that's because, yo, they're good. Like they prevented anyone from challenging them. That's they are that good. Yes, I. it's. It's wildly fascinating to hear how they talk about Georgia's defenses a couple of years ago and the Michigan defense this year. Both teams went 15 and 0. Both teams had similar success defensively, but one of them was never challenged and the other one is maybe the greatest defense of all time and I I find that very interesting that that's the framing. I I also want to point this out about Washington. One of the great seasons in Washington football history. I have spent the last 2 years just waxing poetic about Michael Penix Jr still think of him as a great college football quarterback. I loved watching him play. I love watching those wide receivers play. Every time they were on TV, it was like, it was absolutely must-watch TV for me. I think that the final, I think that when we say to win a national championship, you got to have a great season. A few reporters and unelected, unaccountable juntas have to say you're good enough. You then got to win a game and then you got to win another game. And that's the only way you can do I, I find that to be diminutive because now people are going to say, well, they weren't that good. And the reality is this team was amazing. I, I am in, 
I am always going to root for good offense because I want to see points. But the Huskies were they were must watch TV for me. And that's the highest compliment that I can give to a football team. Um, I wanted to know more about how they did it. That's that's one of the highest compliments I can give to a football team. So to the Washington Huskies, all the all the respect and love what you did. Love that you overcame it. You beat you beat Oregon twice. So you beat your rival twice. I mean, I'm, and then they also beat their greatest rival, Washington State Wazoo. So look, I Washington, you did it, and I I don't think they should look back on this season with their heads held high. You did everything you wanted to do for 15 games and had a chance to run away with the championship. So I I'm I love it, and now we're gonna have to have a different conversation about the Washington Huskies, <laughs> where we said to Michigan, hey, enjoy it, this is your year. Well, Washington. I said all those nice things, and I've got some news. Uh, Jeff, the longstanding head coach at the University of Alabama, one Nicholas Lusabin, has retired um, from football. And he has said, I've had enough, 17 years, six national championships, uh, more SEC championships. I've done it all that I've had to do, and I'm calling it a career. I don't want to do the question, where were you when you heard Nick Saban was retiring? Not going to do that. <laughs> but I am going to ask I was, you this. I, think I was taking a shower. <laughs> I was, I, I was uh, preoccupied in that work, so I didn't hear about it until I got home. But I, I do want you to kind of walk through us, walk us through what you have here. You have some overall numbers, 800 win percentage. Uh Let's talk about some things. I have some things I want to talk about. You have some things you want to talk about. Let, let's paint a complete picture of – let's paint an incomplete picture <laughs> of Nick Saban and his time as a head coach. Yeah, so running a win percentage and seven national titles at Toledo, at Michigan State, at LSU, and Alabama. Um, I think a lot of people have been asking the greatest of all time question, and – there are lots of ways in which you can parse it. You could say, okay, we'll have other people had more success at the same, more or less success at the same places. And Mark D'Antonio had a two thirds winning percentage and Nick Saban had a, uh, 85.5, uh, winning percentage at Michigan state. You could make the case that Mark D'Antonio is, is better. You could also make the case that, Saban becoming the Nick Saban that we describe him as was something that happened after he left Michigan State, after he spent time at LSU and Alabama. You could also ask the question of what is greatness just those titles or and in particular, Alabama is a place that has a lot of advantages to win a national title. It's near a lot of talent. It has a large passionate fan base that has the ability to give the program resources. And how do you compare to uh, coaches that haven't didn't win national titles, but took places that have a ton of disadvantages that are far from talent, don't necessarily have the resources in place or the history in place and elevated those. So you know, if you were to try and compare, say, uh, Bill Snyder at Kansas State, um, the overall winning percentage at Kansas State is forty-two or forty-four point two percent. Bill Snyder had a uh, 
64.6% winning percentage. Alabama's overall winning percentage is 73.3. Nick Saban had 87.8. The the added win percentage by Bill Snyder is, is higher. Which one of those coaches is greater? I don't actually know that there's a true answer, and I think part of the answer is Nick Saban is incredibly good at aligning resources that are present to maximize what high resource places are. And that is what he did at Alabama, that while every coach between Bear Bryant and him had a 10-win season, there was a lot of inconsistency within those coaching um, 10 years. There was just a lot of rash decision-making amongst Amongst those those coaches and Saban had consistent, very high success. Those are two very different tasks to that's a very different task to someone like Bill Snyder coming somewhere with nothing and turning them into a consistent, good program. And I think when we talk greatness, we need to say, okay. Different coaches do different things. We need to celebrate both. We can't say one is better than the other because it does a disservice to to a lot of coaches to do that. I think the sport has a all, a winner take all mentality because the, if we don't define our national champion in a singular way every season, then what are we really doing? That's what we wind up having that's my biggest issue with the way people compare and contrast say coaching tenures or a team's outcomes i have a real problem with that and my biggest issue with it is it diminishes the accomplishments because the the, the regular season of college football is the most important part everything else is an exhibition and what i have an issue with in particular is if we're going to have the conversation, we're going to say, well, we think Nick Saban is the greatest ever. And I think that's a valid question. I think anyone who would make that argument is in, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a sound argument. I want to actually talk more about how he became Nick Saban and less about what did Nick Saban do? We can all wax poetic. He won an Allen Nash championships. He won more than anyone in the modern era. I think that makes him a great coach. I think it makes him the greatest coach of the era. But I want to go back for a second because we talk about, we joked about this off, off mic. We joked about his time at Michigan State. Didn't win a single conference championship. Lost to Purdue every conference. time he played in Ross 8. <laughs> every time Thanks, he Travis. went to Indiana and played Purdue. <laughs> yep. Every time he went to Purdue, lost to Purdue. Beat Purdue once in his own in his only win against Purdue in his first season at Michigan State. And we don't have the we don't even mention that time. We we just ignore it completely. We don't even have that conversation. No innovations, no great defenses. Won nine games in 1999, which great, but like. That got him the LSU job. And at the time, it was up in the air if he would win the national championship when he took the LSU job. But I want to go back even further. In 1990, 
Nick Saban takes over for the Toledo Rockets, wins nine games, wins the MAC, and is heralded as the next hot young gunning coach. It's 33 years ago. He shows up 34 years ago now, but th- this 30 years ago shows up and takes the Toledo Rockets to a to a conference championship. A rare occurrence for the Toledo Rockets. Yes. This is to your point. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just just agreeing yet. Maximizing resources, right? Maximizing resources where there are none. He wins with the Toledo Rockets and immediately gets hired with by Bill Belichick to go coach the Cleveland Browns. And he's the defensive coordinator of the Browns for four years. And what comes out of that time is the pattern match defense, which completely upended how the NFL plays defense. Which is amazing. It's an innovation. He then brings that back to the college game, kind of tests it out in Michigan State. May or may not have the talent to run it. May or may not have the talent to be successful with it there, but I don't want to question that. He gets the talent he needs at LSU, wins the national championship, goes to Miami, coaches the Dolphins a few years, and then next thing you know, he's back in college, and the rest is history. But if you look at the totality of his resume, wins in places where he shouldn't be winning, Toledo, Cleveland, has some success at Michigan State, takes off like a bolt of lightning, lightning strikes when he's at LSU. Lightning strikes again in Alabama, lightning strikes again in Alabama, lightning strikes again in Alabama. And then now we're talking about, is he the greatest of all time? I don't know. Yeah. I, it's been two days. It, right? I will, I will ahead, say Jim. also to, to Nick Saban's credit, he seems always willing to learn and adapt. And begrudgingly, begrudgingly, but does it. And yes, he complains about it the whole time. And I think that that also you've seen him as he's gone along in his career. One just improved in a lot of ways as a head coach between Michigan State and LSU and to Alabama. And as well at his time in Al- at Alabama. Has realized. He can't be stuck in the mud on on offense and has to embrace things, even if he doesn't really like them to win, which I think we've seen a lot of coaches not do that. And particularly coaches of that of his caliber. Be stubborn and arrogant and saying the only way that I can possibly win is my way versus this isn't my way, but it's the way you got to do to win. And I will embrace this and learn from from others. And I think that is something you don't always see in that level of of coach. No, and, and I think that's what makes him that's the best argument for him being one of the greatest of all time, right? Looking at what the sport is doing, the spread out game to defeat the defense that he created. They've changed how they play offense. And he says, oh, I got to get on board. Then he changes his offense to beat the new challenge. I, he's a fascinating character. I, I once read about his 
his idea that cover one is the best base defense. And there's something to it. I like the way he called the defense. He knew how to he knew how to frustrate the people who he was trying to stop. And it's it's wild. Uh, he's in the rare category of coaches that have won the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Rose Bowl and uh, uh, the Cotton Bowl. I think Bob Stoops is one of the only other coaches that's done that. Batted for the cycle and all the great bowl games. <laughs> yeah, and, and some of that I is mean, this era where you're able to create play in a greater variety of bowl games than than in past eras. Sure, but in, even in this era, yeah, he's one of the few that's done it. I mean, that's that's what I'm getting at. It's like he's one of the few that's done it. I don't know. He's fascinating character. He's done everything. He's done everything he's supposed to do as a head coach. And Alabama, they got exactly what they wanted. He never he won double-digit games every year he was at Alabama. Every year. I just... He's going to be one we talk about for a long time. I think we're going to need longer to dissect his legacy. I think we're going to have to talk about specifically the next man up to take his job. And then we'll have a real comparison. And that man is former Washington Huskies head coach, Kalen DeBoer, will be lacing it up and wearing a headset for the Alabama Crimson Tide in 2024 and forward. Now, Jeff, I'm going to ask you this. What did you think of this move by Coach DeBoer? It's interesting. In what way? One well, one I think it's an interesting hire for Alabama because you're going from Nick Saban, who is fundamentally a defensive head coach, but also a organizational very has incredible organizational leadership skills. Is an incredible recruiter, and you're going to someone that is a very talented offensive head coach. I think there have been people have looked at what Washington's recruiting has been, and I think there's some some complications there. But it's it's a different different environment, and just a they went to a very different kind of head coach, and, and we'll see how that shakes out. Are you saying from Nick Saban? From Nick Saban, yeah. Kalen DeBoer, K- Kalen DeBoer is, is a very different kind of head coach and there's nothing wrong with that. And Washington's had a ton of success. It's, it's fascinating from the Alabama side and then from the Washington side. Washington is a very high ceiling program, but also has a low floor. Theoretically, the floor is higher at Alabama but also it we don't is agree there a under a much different microscope it's, it's a very different place to be head coach we don't agree there i think the floor at alabama is far lower than people give it credit for because i remember when they couldn't get when they just when they were can't get right alabama is a tough place to win at 
And I, I think the variance is greater at Alabama than people will give it, then get, then they'll give credence to it because the success, the sustained success by Nick Saban really papers over how bad it can get at Alabama. Alabama was a mess before he got there. A sort of, they were on, they were under probation when he got there. They had lost like, I mean, this this won't happen again. <laughs> but they had lost scholarships. They they had to they had to give up bowl games. They had just fired a head coach who never coached a game. Like it was bad. Like really bad. Like the '90s was rough for Alabama. I'll say Alabama can be a mess when. Double-digit wins and then follow that up with a four-win season. And then a couple of years later, double-digit wins again. Like, I, I think I agree that Alabama can be chaotic, but simultaneously you can win a lot. You can also lose a lot. It's Whereas we've also seen Washington sustain periods of being very, very bad and going like going own 12. And... Yes, yes, but but I and we in the span of Rick New I, I, I want to take a coach. I want to talk about a specific coach. I want to talk about Rick Neuheisel. In the span of Rick Neuheisel, who who was an who was a Washington head coach and was a Washington football player, they won the Rose Bowl and he got fired for only winning a couple. He, he didn't win more than he didn't go to a bowl game. It, this is in the six years he was their head coach, mind you. Like, this isn't like 20, 30 years later. I believe that the same is true about Washington is that we have seen them be bad. I don't think that's their floor. I think that is a culmination of all of the bad things that was happening to them at the exact same time. Current Texas head coach, Steve Sarkeesian was also the Washington head coach, and he abandoned might not be the right word, but he ran away from them as they were on the upswing to take another job in the conference. I, yeah, I don't know that I, I, I think that if, if I will concede that as bad as it can be, if we're going to consider that they're like, yes, Owen 12 is absolutely the quote unquote floor but I don't think that's a consistent that's that is un that was again a confluence of such bad things that I don't know that like that seems like a once in a lifetime thing to me. Cause again, I remember when they were winning championships in the nineties under Don James. I I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe their floor is much lower. And, and to some extent, I think they have more uncertainty than Alabama does as a as a program. Moving to the Big Ten, where I think shaking out what that will be, both in terms of competing with a lot of very good programs, including Oregon that's coming with them, C that's coming with them, and a lot of the powers in the Big Ten, and how things shake out amongst that, how logistically you handle all of that, how fans handle what that will be. 
it is an uncertain time for for Washington that they're now going in with a new head coach. And you can go into a conference with a new head coach and have immediate success. We saw that with Kevin Selmer at Texas A&M. You can also come in and struggle. And I think it's a rough time for Washington to have this level of uncertainty. And that may be a place where that could have influenced DeBoer's decision as well of Alabama kind of is in a situation where it more knows what's around it than than Washington will next year. Agreed. I, I concede that I may be fighting the, an uphill battle here. I, I just look at how Washington has performed. I've looked at how, again, it can get bad. I think it can get bad anywhere. You give the you give the right the right mix of or wrong mix of spices, it can get bad anywhere. But no, I, I think you're right. And again, Norheisel went seven and five, eleven and one, eight and four, seven and six, and won a Rose Bowl at at Washington. So, a thing they wanted to do, like a thing that a thing that they put a lot of stock in. He won, he won a Rose Bowl. Um. But you're right. It's going to be rough. And uh, I'm now curious who Washington hires because that's going to be a big deal. But speculation is not our thing. Not when it comes to not when it comes yeah. to this. I'll say they, they are uh, also like we talked about with Michigan, another place that they could they've got really talented people in the building now. And, and absolutely. I'd, can I hope that a lot of them have the Ryan Grubb. Give Ryan Grubb the job. I mean, that offense. uh just just want to get it in every Saturday. Give me the points. Keep scoring. I don't care. Run the score up. You don't like it, stop it. Um, you had three bullets here on the impact of the game, and you're 100% correct. Uh, I want you to give me those that you have, and I'll, I'll give you the one that I think should be on here as well. But I, I had a huge impact on the game, and that's another testament to his greatness. Yeah, see, so we talked about um, the schematic things that uh, – Simon and done the the adaption and kind of defining what this era is and and a lot of the decision making around college football revolving around stopping him trying to beat him other places seeing that success and wanting it for themselves other places hiring assistants other places hire making hiring decisions entirely to beat him and it's just been kind of the center of gravity for the past decade. Yeah. So uh, we could rattle off any number of coaches that are on his coaching tree, uh, including other national championship <laughs> winners, Jimbo Fisher and uh, 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 Kirby Governor, Car- Governor <laughs> Kirby Smart of UGA. I mean, we could very easily make that argument. Uh, there's a number of other guys that are, in addition to that, professional head coaches, like Adam Gase, who has had two coaching jobs. I again, just a wild list of just a wildly talented group of men that coaches that have come out of there. But one of the things that I want to add onto this list is wrangling a booster core or showing coaches how they can convince a hostile booster core to work within his system. 
And I'm just always fascinated by how, again, the Alabama Booster Corps was something. They all had power. At least they all thought they did. <laughs> Until Nick showed up and Nick, he he ratcheted it up and got him in, locked it in lockstep with him, which wild how he did that. Bear Bryant III is running the show these days. I Very impressive. I just, I, that's the thing that stuck out to me. He did it in a way that, he did it with the he did it with a whip the same way Mac Brown did it with a handshake. It's very impressive. Um, wild stuff. Want to move on to the dessert? Uh, you have a an interesting note here. I don't follow much MLS or um, the or they're called are they called the Netherlands? Are they called the yes. Orange Men? Yes, sometimes? they're they're the they're orange. called the Orange. Yes, right? um, okay. I. I Every time this. I see Kalen DeBoer's name, I have to do a double take. And I, I really hope uh, Washington or uh, so I really hope Alabama did their paperwork right and don't accidentally hire Frank DeBoer, uh, former Atlanta United and Crystal Palace and uh, Dutch national team manager um, who not nearly is successful right now as a uh, Kalen DeBoer on the pitch. But my brain always has to do a double take of. Or the fact there there are two gentlemen who are uh, head coaches who have been in pretty high profile head coaching jobs that have the same last name in different sports. No, absolutely. I think that's great. I'm trying to think is I'm I'm I have vivid memories of the Netherlands national team doing well in the last world. Cup. Am I misremembering? Yep, that? but not with or not with uh, Frank De Boer as their manager. Um, and I mean, okay. the Dutch, like, they just the Dutch are typically very successful. Um, it is a very talented nation given its size and, and the youth development in a lot of the Dutch clubs is really incredible. I- Ajax is kind of the blueprint for a lot of other places doing doing youth development in, in Amsterdam. And there have been a lot of innovations in the game that have come out of Ajax and the Dutch national team. Um, so including you know, everything that Pep Guardiola does kind of at Manchester City that's kind of considered the pinnacle of football that intellectually started with things happening at Ajax and with the Dutch national team. Yes, it was 2010, uh, the World Cup that was in South Africa. They got all the way to the final. That's what I remember of the Dutch national team. So um, we're looking at over a decade ago, so I apologize to the soccer fans. Uh, but I also remember them beating the U.S. in the round of 16 in 2022. That uh, they did. So <laughs> a thing that I have made my displeasure known with the men's national team and uh, Stars and Stripes, get it together. Um, win something of note. Uh, you were yelling at me because they won something, and I had never heard of they it. Have, they have so, won within the past couple of years, a couple of Gold Cups, a couple, couple Nations Leagues. Um, so they've they've won things at the continental level and beaten Mexico a number of times. Uh, but yeah, I think there is a... We've not quite seen turning a lot of the really great young talent that the U.S. has and and talent starting to reach the prime of their careers into 
things beyond the continental level. And it'll be an interesting couple of years into the 2026 World Cup to see how how a lot of that sorts out. Yeah, I mean, they've gotten to four finals of the World Cups and the U.S. men's national team has gotten to zero. So I'm going to learn Dutch <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take go, go, uh, go orange. That's what I'm going to say here because they're winning. They're winning a lot. The Flying Dutchman. What a clever name. All right. Jeff, you've got a big run coming up, so I want to make sure we shout them out one more time and say donations are still open until January. Until January the 14th. So depending on we're recording this on Friday the 12th. So I don't know when we'll see when I can get this up and and blue when you can get this edited. So uh, but if it is before the 14th, you've got until the 14th when I uh, do my run for donations and that'll be in the show notes. If you'd like to donate to cure rare disease. And what's the cause again? Thank yes, cure, cure disease. rare disease, which uh, is an organization working to find cures to rare genetic diseases. Anything you want to leave the people with? We are now officially into the off season and good time to recharge, to relax, to do many of the other hobbies that that folks do or that you you engage with. I know that's some of them doing, doing obviously a little bit of traveling, doing doing running. And yeah, it is a good time to uh, take that fresh breath of air um, and kind of relax from the chaos that is the football season. Although that appears to be continuing because the coaching carousel refuses to stop. This is an earth-shattering coaching carousel this year, and uh, it's going to be fun. Although I am yelling, "Stop the ride!" I want to get off. Um, this is it, folks. I, you know, this is the dreaded off season for the next eight months through all of January, the rest of January, all of the next several months, and most of August. There will be no college football, and that's okay. I like Jeff said. Now is the time to do for yourself. Let's take a step back. Take a couple weeks off and allow yourself to kind of wander. Let your mind wander. It's okay to be bored. Um, so a thing that I learned uh, over my time as a high school teacher. If you have a bored student, that's good. That means they are keeping up and their mind is wandering, which allows them to be more creative in their thought process. Um, do the same for yourself. Allow yourself to be bored. Take a moment. Examine something you haven't seen before. Exempt something you've seen before in a new way. Go find a new perspective. That's the thing I want everyone to try in this offseason. Try something different. Try something new. Get out your comfort zone. Go watch a, pre- a spring game of a team you don't really care about. Watch another sport. I mean, it's... Watch another there, sport. There is a lot going on in the sports world that you can, you know... Right now. Yeah, right now. We've got um, gymnastics getting up and running in the college world. Um, we're not that far from um, the start of the club soccer season. We are deep in the basketball season, both club or both pro and college. We'll have softball and baseball starting up. Um, I've had the first sightings in the while of a Dodgers Otani jersey and it threw me for an incredible loop uh, this afternoon. But there is, there is a lot. I think one, one thing I always 
quite enjoys looking at different sports and their landscapes and comparing and contrasting to each other and kind of that helping me contextualize things in in the different sports that I follow and, and also even outside of sports and different hobbies and fandoms and how there are more things in common across a lot of these endeavors than most people want to recognize. Correct. I will say this because it is in the next few days. As soon as Jeff is done doing his run, the Australian Open is going to begin. And I, a big tennis head, am very excited about the 2024 Australian Open. And I uh, can't wait to see what happens. Done be hollering at 6 a.m. <laughs> well, I might be watching the <laughs> but I am going to be watching it. I'll tell you that much. I mean, it's fine. They're on the they're on the bottom of the earth. It's fine. We'll we'll turn it on whenever when we're ready. I'll turn it on. Uh, but that's exciting stuff. It's here. The off season. Maybe we'll have some stuff for you. We're gonna try to get it out. We'll let you know. But as we always say, don't forget to feed your mascot.